Good morning, church. It's really good to be here uh, with you today in worship. Welcome to those who are in the building with us today and to those who are joining us online. And I want to thank you so much for birthday wishes this week. Much appreciated. I turned 40 this week. And, uh, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it's a real struggle. Some of you know. <laughs> Tomorrow, uh, Sheila and I will celebrate 18 years of marriage. We're looking forward to that. And thank you. Yeah. Very, very exciting time. And, and I don't know which has required more wisdom, getting to 40 or getting to 18 years of marriage. Right? It, might, it might not be wise to answer that question. So, uh, so I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> I do remember early on in our marriage, I wanted to be wise. I wanted to be the husband with all the answers. I wanted to be the guy that she could come home to after a long, hard day and unload, and I would just be able to solve all her problems. <laughs> and all you wives know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I learned very early on in marriage that it was much wiser to keep my mouth shut and give a hug than to try to answer and find solutions to the problems that plagued her on any given day uh, coming home from work. There is so much in our world today that we need wisdom for. We live in very tumultuous and confusing times. And there is a way for believers to get at wisdom. There is a way. But it's not the way that the world values. And think of the way that our world often defines and perceives wisdom in this generation. A lot of times, it's by a piece of paper, a degree that's been conferred. And how many we hang up on our walls is the definition of how wise one might be. Some say it's about age. Sometimes that's true. Others say it's about life experience. But that's not always part of it. There is so much more to true, lasting, real, eternal wisdom. And it is available to us. So from a biblical perspective, how does one become wise? What are the qualities of real wisdom? How do we know or how might we know when we're in the presence of someone who is wise? And what are the tools, what are the things that God has given us to help us become wise? These are the questions we must explore and unpack as we come to our text today. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians, continuing in our study through the book. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you want to take and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Our desire as we walk through this text today is not to find ourselves in the same trappings that caught the early church in Corinth. We're going to need Jesus' help if we are going to live with wisdom in the world Today, we need real wisdom, real wisdom that will help us function 
as disciples of Jesus, together as his church, in this overwhelmingly unbelieving world that he's planted us in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And today we are thankful that there is real wisdom available to us. We need it. And Father, we need Jesus' help. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us. We need wisdom for today. There's much that can be confusing, much that can feel weighty. All of us in this room face daily trials and tribulations and persecutions and grief and heartache and loss that come against us as a tide. And our heart's desire is to know how to live and to walk wisely in a way that's honoring and glorifying to you as we face these things. And so we gather around your text today as a body of Christ, and we already know, Lord, that your spirit is working and that your word is going to produce its fruit, for it never returns void. And so by faith, we give you thanks for that great promise today. And we open the page of this text and we pray that your spirit will apply to each one of us what is needed to make us wise in the world that you've planted us in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, today we're looking at verses 18 to 23. Verses 18 to 23. Now remember, this is a letter. Paul is writing a letter The numbers and the verses, those verse numbers and chapter numbers you see, those are later additions. This is one fluid letter. So let's read it with that tone today as someone who's writing to somebody they love and they care about. Let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So last week in our study, we ended in verse 17. And if you look back at one verse, go ahead and look back at verse 17, how Paul concluded that last section of his letter. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And Paul is now beginning this section by describing the posture of one who may actually be a destroyer of the church rather than someone who is building the church up. Look at verse 18 again. Let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Could it be that those among us who think that they are wise in this age 
who in their own minds think that they are the wisest, could be the very ones who are doing the most damage. And we'll see that later today in an example from the Old Testament. Paul came to the people of God in Corinth with a posture of humility. And we remember that Paul's message, his speaking, was not with eloquent words. His message was very, very simple. And his style in the New Testament was contrasted by another man whose name was Apollos. And Apollos was different than Paul. He was very eloquent, very good with words and elaborate in his rhetoric and his depth of teaching. But both Paul and Apollos were Christian workers sent by God to minister to the people. And the people they were sent to minister to had fallen into a comparison trap. Remember that? We studied it a few weeks ago. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Who was the more effective teacher and the more effective minister? This question and the answer to it, it was important to the people that they were following and listening to and applying the principles from who they perceived to be the wisest leaders among them. Paul and Apollos both embraced the same message. Sure, they had different styles, they had different methods and different modes of communicating, but it was the message of Christ and Him crucified that they both proclaimed and they both stood on. And Paul is reminding the people of God in Corinth that it's futile to attempt to adjudicate or determine which minister is more effective in the task and the work that they have been called to perform. This because, friends, all true ministers, as we saw last week, operate on the same fuel. Do you remember what that fuel was? All ministers operate on the fuel of God's grace. And all ministers build on the same foundation. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. It is God who makes the minister effective. It is God who brings the increase. So who are we to judge? Paul will actually dive deeper into this concept in next week's text. But we won't digress here. Paul illustrates this point by quoting from the Old Testament. Particularly, he is quoting from the narrative of Job. And friends, Job is a powerful narrative that is loaded with the self-deceived wisdom of men. Men who thought as they approached Job with all of the answers to the things that he was facing in his life, these were men who thought in their own minds according to the wisdom of the age, that they were wise. If you've never read the book of Job, I give you an assignment for June. I've been doing that a lot lately, but it's fun. June's assignment, read the book of Job. It's a great read. You won't be disappointed. The man for who the book is named after, Job, he's in a rather uncomfortable situation. Almost everything precious to him has been taken by the hand of Satan. 
He's lost his children. He's lost his money. He's lost material possessions. He's lost his physical well-being. He's lost his comfort. All has been taken away. Even his wife chides him and tells him, curse God and die. His final few remaining friends daring to enter his presence have some words, none of which turn out to be very helpful. Paul quotes one of Job's friends in verse 19. Take a look. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. That's Job chapter 5, verse 13. These were the words of Eliphaz, who thought himself to be rather wise, suggesting that Job must have been guilty of some offense for the Lord to allow this calamity to come upon him. Simply put, Job was getting what was coming to him from past behaviors. But as Paul quotes in Psalm 94, verse 11, if you look in verse 20, he reminds us, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Eliphaz's words here are futile. Job's friends were not wise. It was futile for them to try to diagnose and discern the reasons for Job's sufferings and his trials and his tribulations. His friends' names were Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Some of you will remember if you've read the book. And one by one they go at Job and they try to describe and discern and prescribe the reasons for all the problems that he's facing. And in the course of the book, as you look back, they're making themselves look as fools. Friends, having trite answers and quibbling prescriptions to the ills we face in this life does not equate to wisdom. Paul is not looking here to give the people in God in Corinth a wordy description on how to solve their problems, nor was he looking to prescribe some cornucopia of solutions for them. He was more interested in getting at real wisdom and helping the people of God become wise for eternity. So we may ask ourselves the question today, what is it that makes a person wise? Is it age? Is it life experience? How about a piece of paper proving the attainment of a degree? For the answer to that question, we turn back to Job's narrative. After Job's friends, one by one, aimlessly target the cause of Job's afflictions, after they fail to provide comfort and compassion to their brother in need, a young man comes along by the name of Elihu. And as religiously and spiritually minded as Job's friends thought they were, they had failed to provide any real wisdom to speak into the misery that Job was enduring. Thinking themselves to be wise, they were speaking as fools. And they were offering wisdom according to the world. They offered foolishness cloaked as wisdom. 
failing to recognize the sovereign purposes of God in Job's afflictions and his sufferings. In all of their words that cover many chapters in the book of Job, they failed to remind Job that he was a man who was not fitted for this world, but rather for another. A heavenly home, one that is perfect, free from pain and affliction. And then this young man, Elihu, steps in. And as the old saying goes, out of the mouths of babes. Elihu is youthful. He's younger than Job's three friends. And the account begins in Job chapter 32. If you want to follow along, we're going to quickly move through it. We don't have much time today. But Elihu is very, very angry. He's very upset. And the text says that his anger was burning both towards Job and towards Job's friends. He was angry at Job because Job had sought to try to justify himself as if he had no sin, no reason that all of this would be occurring to him. And he was angry at Job's friends because they were failing to offer any real answers or give any real wisdom related to the solutions to the problems that Job was facing. And so in verse 4 of chapter 32, Elihu waits to speak his turn, letting the older men speak first. This is an indication that his anger was not controlling him, but rather he was fully aware of his emotion, yet he was wise enough to know how to use his emotions in a God-honoring way. As the scripture says, be angry and do not sin. So Elihu breaks in, starting in verse 6 of chapter 32, he begins this holy God-inspired verbal assault on the self-deceived wisdom of Job's friends. And in some ways, he's just like Paul. Look at verse 6. He tells them that he was timid and he was afraid to speak. Who does that sound like? 1 Corinthians 2, I came to you with weakness and much fear and trembling. Not with eloquent speech. Then in verse 7, Elihu admits that he's allowed the wisdom of the age to influence his silence. Why had he waited so long to speak? He says in verse 7, I said to myself, let the days speak and the many years teach wisdom. Let the older guys have their say first. But then in verse 8, he reminds everyone where real wisdom comes from. Not from his age, not from his life experience. Take a look at what he says in verse 8, chapter 32. But is it the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand? It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. A person is wise when they are indwelt by the Almighty and speak the words of the Almighty. As Pastor Tom prayed at the end of his prayer today, that we would be people of the book. We have the words of the Almighty. We have real wisdom for this age. 
So if a wise person is indwelt by God and speaking the word of God and our God is one and has given us his word, we would think that there would be some common qualities to this wisdom. What then are some of the common qualities of true wisdom? And Elihu's going to get to it. We're going to further explore his words here. And as we do, we want to draw three conclusions pertaining to the nature of true wisdom. Elihu is compelled. It's like, have you ever sat in a room? Have you ever been in a meeting before and you just wanted to speak, but you knew you you couldn't? You had to keep your mouth shut. And you just had to wait your turn. Have you ever been in a situation like that? And when it finally gets around to you and your turn comes. (laughs) That's Elihu in this situation. He is compelled, strongly urged within himself to speak. The text exposes that he's unable to contain his words. He's no longer willing to listen to the nonsense that had been propagated before God and Job from Job's friends. And after he rebukes the older men, the friends of Job, he actually turns his attention to Job in chapter 33. And he's going to rebuke Job too. No one here is safe. And listen to not just his words, but the tone that they convey. Look at Job 33, verses 29 to 33. Remember, Elihu's anger is burning towards Job because Job has tried to justify himself and make himself out to be innocent. Look at what Elihu says. Behold, God does all of these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. I had an old man in my life one time. And when I say old, I mean he was old. He was an old man who spoke wisdom into my life. And one time, he saw something in my life that I was doing that he thought was unhealthy to to me and for me. And when he came to me and when he confronted me about this thing, I was a young man at the time and all I wanted to do was what? Just try to justify why I was doing it. This is why I did it. Finally, he, he was a man who wore one of these shirts that have a pocket here. And inside that pocket, I don't have one with me. Anybody have a pen this morning? You got a pen, Scott? Anybody else? Maybe he's got to get one out. I'm going to see a pen. Thank you. Inside his pocket, he kept a pen right here. And this is what he would do in the course of the conversation. He said, Chris, when I hold the pen, I'm going to talk. And when I give the pen to you... Then you can talk. (laughs) Well, guess how much I got the pen? (laughs) Not very much. I'll give you that pen back a little bit later. That's what I needed. I needed that. 
And that's what Elihu is doing here to Job. Job, I got the pen. You've had time to speak. Now you're going to listen to me. And in the very next words, after verse 33, in the very next words that Elihu speaks, after he says that he is going to declare wisdom to Job, he moves into a homily on God's justice. Friends, what he has done is he's exposed the unrighteousness of Job and his friends, and he's laid it bare before the God of perfect justice and righteousness. Job had thought he was innocent, and without transgression and without reason for all of these calamities that had come upon him. And Elihu reminded him that when we think we are innocent, we need to ask, and God will teach us that which we do not see regarding our own sinfulness. And when God reveals it to us, we should confess and repent of it. And this confrontation goes back and forth. Really, it's just one way. It's Elihu speaking at Job, and it comes to full crescendo in chapter 35. Did you ever walk into a confrontation that made you feel very, very uncomfortable. Things are uncomfortable here for Job. I think if we were to see this happening in person, we would all be very uncomfortable. I've walked into confrontations like that before, and I just remember trying to slowly back my way out, shut the door. I didn't want anybody to know that I had witnessed what was going on. If we If we're present at the beginning of this confrontation in chapter 35, we're probably backing out because Job is getting a full rebuke. And finally, in chapters 36 and 37, Elihu prepares the way for the Lord himself to speak to Job. It's not just Elihu's words. Elihu's done the job of showing Job, showing his friends that they are not free from guilt, that they have unrighteousness, in their life as well, that needs to be confessed and repented of. But now Elihu's stepping back, and he is going to prepare the way for the Lord to speak. And friends, true wisdom elevates the greatness of God and proclaims His majesty. And this is what Elihu does. And for many of us in this room, we're aware of this already because we know Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And back in Job chapter 37, Elihu eloquently puts before Job these powerful reminders of God's greatness. They're illustrations that when you read them, friends, they just invoke this awestruck fear and wonder for the Lord. Look at chapter 37. Just going to read a few of them. Chapter 37, verse 5. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Verse 14, hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Verse 16, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. Verse 22, out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. Verse 23, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Then, 
the powerful resonance of verse 24, which so beautifully moves us right back into 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at what Elihu says. Therefore, men and women, fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Paul says at the beginning of verse 21, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, So let no one boast in men. And the third quality of true wisdom is that it boasts not in men, but rather on the wisdom of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, in whom we have been given everything. It's not, it's not what men say to us. Job's friends could have sat there and continued and continued and continued, and they would have continued to have no answers. They were working from the wrong source. We have the greatest, most powerful source that has all the answers to the most difficult situations that we could face here in this world. It is the Word of God. It is magnificent. It is powerful. And it is a wonderful source of wisdom for us today. Real wisdom, friends, does not have to grasp for answers to the world's most significant problems, trials, or tribulations that we face. Real wisdom remains composed and confident, recognizing that in Christ we have been given all the answers we need for today. Paul's going to move in to share this in verse 21. Take a look at what he says. All Things are yours. All things. The Lord's given us so many wonderful gifts. The first of which Paul's going to mention are the servants that God had placed among the people in Corinth. Look at the beginning of verse 22. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas... Friends, the Christian workers among us, whether they're pastors, whether they're missionaries, elders, teachers, coordinators, directors, we are all servants. We all belong to God. And isn't it beautiful that in love, God has gifted leaders to the church. And he's gifted them to the church according to his purposes for each local congregation throughout the world. What does it mean to the people of God at CNBC that God so intimately cares for and knows you, that he knows and selects, according to his divine providence, the exact pastors and elders and leaders that he wants to be working in the midst of the body here at CNBC. Friends, we are valuable and loved By God. And we serve a big God who's given Christ to be the head of this massively diverse worldwide church. And then God has gifted and called individual leaders to serve his people. Leaders of the church belong to God through Christ first and then to the congregation. Now, I realize that in saying this, sometimes we might feel like we didn't really get the gift that we wished for. 
in our leaders, right? We're not always happy with our leaders. It's okay to laugh a little bit. I'm okay with that. (laughs) I know that. That's just the reality of being in any position of leadership. Not everyone's always going to be happy with what you do or what you say, how you respond to things, no matter where we lead or how we lead. But isn't it interesting, and could you imagine in your mind for a moment, again, recognizing that God calls and appoints leaders according to his divine providence, that he might not always give us the leader that we want. But every time, he gives to us the leader that we need. For God knows us far better than we know ourselves. Friends, in my life, I've struggled with some leaders in my life. I've had some folks in my life who have been hard to get along with in leadership positions. I've had some folks that I've disagreed with from time to time. And I have to remind myself of this truth very, very often. That the people that are in authority over my life are there because God has placed them there. And whether I like it or not all the times, can I stop to consider in faith that God has determined that they are the exact people I need in this moment. And for Paul and for any leaders among us, this is not a, I'm God's gift to you posture. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what this is, is Paul saying we are God's gift one to another And we demonstrate our love for God by serving one another as he has appointed to each one to serve. Again, we cannot forget the context of this passage is not singular. This is still Paul's opening statements. He's addressing the congregation as a whole. The you that you read in this part of his letter is a plural you. We are all ministers, one to another at one level or another we are all God's gift to each other but our calling is to love to serve to edify to encourage and to lift one another up friends I look at my own marriage tomorrow like I said 18 years Sheila is one of God's gifts to me she's been given to me for a purpose And a reason. And marriage isn't always easy. There's a lot of you in this room that understand that and know that. But in the days when it's not easy, can I have the faith to believe that God has given me the spouse that I need? My children, a gift from God. I'm going to tell you, though, last night during family pictures... You ever try to get family pictures done with kids that don't speak English? (laughs) Where they're going to line up, where they're going to sit, where they're going to go, how they're going to get there, all the directions involved. My sister and her family, my mom and dad. I can't say that they always feel like they're God's gift. (laughs) But they are. They are. And friends, Jesus reminded us That the Father desires to give His children good gifts. That's what He does. 
And we might not always recognize the wonderful gifts that God has given us, but we are testimonies of God's faithfulness one to another. Somebody in our congregation writes a letter and puts it in my mailbox. I go to my box, I open it up, and I read it, and I'm encouraged and edified and built up. That's a gift. Somebody in our congregation has great need, and somebody signs up to take a meal or to provide transportation. That's love. The outworking of real, true wisdom. Things that last. God gives us what we need to carry us through as sojourners in this world. And when he gives us a gift, it truly belongs to us. But it's not just people that God gives to his church. Look at verse 22. All things are yours. There's a second triumphant here in verse 22. Whether the world or life or death. All things are yours. Now consider the implications of this. All things in this world are ours in Christ. In this world, this creation that the Lord has planted us in, yes, it is decaying, yes, it is sin-corrupted, but it is a gift from God to humanity. Let us never forget that this was all part of God's original creative masterpiece, and today we live in a far-off version of what this place once was, but we are still here. God desired for Adam and Eve all the way back in the book of Genesis to nurture and to care for the creative gift that he had placed them in. And I don't believe that his desire has changed for us today. If I give my children a precious gift, I expect that they're going to take care of it and nurture it, not destroy it. And while there are many different views and opinions related to how we should protect and preserve the world that God has given us to live in, we can all agree that we must care for and nurture this living gift. The world is alive. There is life in this world. And life itself is part of this list that Paul has given. Part of what is to be protected and preserved and defended and advocated for. Paul says life is ours, church. Every breath is a gift. Do we live like it? Does our life overflow with gratitude and thankfulness because we are so thankful for the life that we have been given? Is it hard sometimes? Yes, no doubt. It is. Is it uncomfortable sometimes? Absolutely. And we go through difficult seasons in our lives. But life is ours in Christ. And friends, every life matters to God. Every life. Whether it's a newborn baby or an ultra well-seasoned saint. Whether it's a life that has an extra chromosome or a special ability. Whether it's a life that's in a womb or a life behind a cell. Whether it's a life that's been abandoned, ignored, put down, or oppressed. Or a life that's endured significant trauma, abuse, or neglect. Or a life that's had little trauma at all. Wealthy or poor, hope-filled or hopeless. 
Every life matters and is precious to God. Everyone. Life is a gift, friends. And we should cherish it as such. Now, what about death? Remember, Paul is talking to people who are believers in this letter. And for believers, for those of us who are in Christ, death on earth moves us onto glorious eternity. Paul said it this way, far better for me to be with Christ. And friends, couldn't we echo that today? Far better for us to be with Christ. But as long as I'm here, God has a purpose. Right? There's only one way, or two ways, there's only two ways that we can begin to experience the fullness of joy that eternity is going to bring. One is for Jesus to come back, right? Which could happen any day. And another is for us to pass on to glory. As long as God has us here on earth, it is for His glory and our own benefit and someone else's benefit too. All things are yours. There's two more in verse 22. Whether the present or the future, all are yours. So here we are, friends. The church in the 21st century in a world that undeniably is moving further and further away from things that are honoring to God. And yet here we are remaining with the great gifts that He has given us, His words, each other. How are we going to use or what are we going to do with the gifts that we've been given in Christ? How might our lives look in light of these realities? Friends, today, today is a gift. It's a gift. Don't take it for granted. We don't know how many more we're going to have. You could sit here and say, oh, come on, pastor. I'm going to wake up tomorrow just like I woke up the day before then, the day before then. Don't say that. We don't know. Our future glorification is a gift. How are we going to live in light of eternity? Paul is imploring the church here to give up its factionalism, to give up its division, because there is far too much at stake here on earth for the short time that we are here for them to keep dividing over which leader they think is more effective, this one or that one. Give it up and pursue real wisdom. Real wisdom is found in Christ. Christ is our unity. He is what holds us together. Friends, it's much more fun to do this, to go through this earth together, differences and all, than it is to be apart from one another. What great hope that we have to hold on to that there is a place where all of the muck and mire that we face on this earth is already worked out in accordance with God's perfect ways. And somehow, some way, even now, while we're here on this earth, 
God allows us to be part of this perfect future reality. Paul has spent much of the opening of this letter showing the church all that we have in common and correcting the church's misguided propensity to divide. Every believer in this world belongs to God through Jesus. And that is how we are united. Look at how he concludes in verse 23. You are Christ. And Christ is God's. Our team is going to come to lead us in a final song this morning. And as they do, we might continue to answer the question that's been hanging over this entire book as we have studied it. How do we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? Giving up strife division, and jealousy in wisdom, we grab hold of everything that we have in Christ and run the race set before us with love and gratitude, building one another up and making disciples for the glory of our King. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to remember this morning That real wisdom isn't in the places that are most prevalent before us here on earth. It's not going to be delivered to our doorstep every day. It's not going to be found in our mailboxes. We're not going to turn on the television. Certainly we're not going to see it or find it in any of the news sources on the internet. The Father true and the real wisdom that you have given us is solely found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our wisdom. He's your wisdom. He's revealed your wisdom to us. And he hasn't left us alone, Lord. We're thankful that he's left us with this power of the Spirit who indwells us. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have left us with the wonderful gift of your word. You've called us to use it. And we pray we would use it well and steward it well, Father. Lord, you've also given us one another to love, to lift up, to edify, and to encourage while we're here on earth. And our prayer today is that you would make us wise to use the gifts that we've been given to glorify you, to build one another up, And to love others as we have been loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.